What if you had a guide who could tell you how to bridge a gap between who you are today and who you're destined to be? What if each week you could hear a story of someone who has tried and succeeded, or perhaps tried and failed, but learned something in the process? Limitless Spirit is a weekly podcast where host Helen Todd interviews guests about topics and personal stories on defining life's purpose, pursuing personal growth, and developing a deeper faith in Christ. Our coordinator in Turkey was in prison for three years in Iran, did a 90-day hunger strike to see his other brothers and sisters that were being held released. We, we have members of our team who repeatedly go before the secret police, put into a van, curtains drawn, car gets driven to an unmarked building, questions, 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 hours of questions. Some of them have been chased out of their own home by their mother or father with a knife, with a gun. And when they look at me and they say, Jesus is worth it. It seems very disconcerting, and yet God's using it in a way that furthers his kingdom. There are millions of Christians around the world today who put their lives on the line to preach the gospel. And there are countless more who undergo emotional and spiritual abuse for their faith in Christ. And while you may not live in a place where your faith endangers your life, your connection with the persecuted church goes deeper than you may think. I'm your host, Helen Todd, and today on this episode of the Limitless Spirit Podcast, I talk with Joshua Youssef, President and CEO of Help the Persecuted, a ministry that provides practical and spiritual support to persecuted Christians around the world, specifically in Muslim countries. In our conversation, you will hear incredible testimonies of God's work through the Christian church in Muslim countries, what you can learn from the persecuted church, and how you can help. Hello, Josh. Welcome to the Limitless Spirit Podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me on, Helen. I'm really excited to talk to you because uh, what you do and your organization, Help the Persecuted Church, is very close to our heart. Uh, We work in many countries uh, where Christians are being persecuted, so we have run into that as well. Also, this is, I think, kind of the time of the year to remember (laughs) the persecuted church. We have the uh, National Day of Prayer for the persecuted church coming up in November. And just a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a march uh, to raise awareness for the persecuted church in Washington, D.C., From what I heard, it had a great turnout, and I think uh, it's an awesome thing to do because, you know, as a church, I I think we're very interconnected. When we arrive into a new country as a missions team and, you know, we're, we're just in a phase of getting to know people, the moment I walk into a church and I see the body of Christ in that country, I instantly feel like part of the family. Uh, like this is my family that I had not met before. And so when part of my family hurts somewhere half across the world, that affects me directly. And so I think it's uh, um, it's important for us to be aware of that. So uh, before we talk about what you do, let's talk a little bit about you. How did you become the champion for the persecuted church? Well, 
this all started in uh, early 2000s. I joined my father, Dr. Michael Youssef, uh, with, uh, in his ministry, Leading the Way. And I became really almost obsessed with what he was doing in the Middle East. I loved, like you said, I had that experience in Egypt and Lebanon and other countries when um, I would visit some of the work that Leading the Way was doing. I would go into a church and I would say, oh, these are my brothers and sisters. And, and, and not just people that are born into a, an ethnic Christian home, but when I started to meet converts, like those who had left Islam, I became very attached to their stories and very attached to what God was doing in their life. And it, partly because it, it really encouraged and exhorted me and challenged my faith. Uh, because I do feel like I struggle with kind of being a coward, you know, in the West. I think we all struggle with that. We struggle with that timidity. And and to see these people that have taken such a bold step in terms of uh, being ostracized by their family and uh, losing their jobs, being put in prison, it always left me with this question, what do I do with Jesus? What What have I done that has put me at odds with the world or with, with anyone for that matter. And so, um, and it's, it's hard because we, you know, I live in the South and in the Southern United States where there's kind of the Bible belt and it, it is hard to find, seek out persecution there, but there are times when God calls us to do something righteous and, and it may result in, in something that, um, that is, that is unpleasant. Um, and so, you know, I, I fell in love with with that the what we call the MBB community, the Muslim background believing community, uh, in the early two thousands. Uh, later, my father and I helped build a, a satellite TV channel called the Kingdom Sat in the Middle East and North Africa, and I built out the what we call the follow up network, the the audience relations and the follow up network for all of these contacts. So they were getting anywhere from two to 5,000 contacts a month. And then from that audience relations department, they would then funnel those communications down to the individual response level. And people would, their goal was to get to a face-to-face meeting with everybody who uh, professed faith or wanted to, to be baptized or wanted to know more about Jesus. And so this took us into a whole different kind of trajectory where we were hearing from people saying, Look, it's not just, I want to know more about Jesus. It's, you know, how do I find a job now that I've lost my job because of my faith? Or, you know, I'm being threatened by my family. They want to kill me. Or what do I do if my husband went to jail for his faith? And so what, how do I provide for my family? And so these, these kind of broader societal issues were coming to the surface in our ministry leading the way. And so, you know, we had a, a gentleman who gave us a large grant and he said, let's, let's set up a fund that we can use those funds to help these individual people. And out of that grant has come this totally separate organization, Help the Persecuted, where, you know, last year we helped over 40,000 persecuted Christians and, and the Lord's done amazing things, both with Help the Persecuted and even leading the way since we've, since we've kind of separated. Yeah. So that's how I kind of got into it. That's very understandable. Now, um, I know that uh, your father uh, accepted Christ in Egypt. Was he a Muslim background believer or was he uh, born in a Coptic family or how, how did that happen? 
Yeah, so the the Yusuf family would be uh, historically Coptic. They are from Upper Egypt, down in the south, in a city called Asyut. Maintained its Christian identity. Many of them have, have maintained their Christian identity since the time of Christ, since the, the Apostle Mark. So that is the background. Now, the last probably two generations, maybe three generations, would be evangelical. There was a, a big Presbyterian movement in the late 1800s uh, where missionaries came into Egypt and won many, many converts, uh, you know, out of the, out of the Coptic church and some, some out of Islam. But that's, that's my family's heritage. My father it comes out of that background. Very cool. So this is interesting that uh, your work developed as a follow-up to the evangelistic outreach of your father. And uh, it is, um, it is very important, you know, because normally evangelistic organizations, missions organizations are focused on winning people for Christ. But you're very right. There are consequences in, in mo- many countries uh, across the world. There are very uh, severe sometimes consequences to that. What are, uh, is, is your uh, work mostly then in the Middle East and focused on the Muslim countries or you work in other countries across the world? Yeah, so in, uh, you, you bring up an interesting point and I'll, I'll share this before I kind of talk about the regions that we minister in. There was a gentleman named Dr. Hannah Shaheen who ran uh, Transworld Radio in the Middle East and North Africa for many years. And he used to tell me, you know, Josh, I haven't studied the data on this, but if you look at the percentage of Muslims who go back to Islam, it's very, very high. And a lot of that is driven by the fact that there is what we experience, what we call civic death, that the convert experiences this civic death, which is the parents, the imam, the neighbors, the boss. All of these people are working in concert to bring that person back to Islam. And so they cut, they take their passport away. They, they cut off their ability to earn an income. They lock them in their room. They torture them. They electrocute them. I mean, it, it, it just gets worse as you, uh, some things I can't even say on the podcast, but all of these things contribute to this, this, this frailty of, 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 of one's faith in one's faith. And so what, what we felt was that we needed to look at this holistically. We, yes, we're sharing the gospel to them, but how do we minister to people who are in a state of weakness? And so that's where we kind of came in with safe housing, enduring livelihood cases where we help people build a business plan, start a business, employ more MBBs. All of this is, is kind of looking at the whole person and the whole uh, effort. Uh, in, in, in concert. And so that's, you know, what we do in Morocco and Algeria, uh, Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Turkey, Iran, Iraq. We have a wonderful ministry in Iraq. God is doing amazing things amongst particularly young men. I, I, I've never seen anything quite like it where uh, young uh, professionals have lost everything, living in safe houses together, in Bible study together. Very bold, like saying that we can use their images and their faces. Normally people say, you know, blur me out. Right. And so that is kind of what we're doing. And then now kind of looking into Afghanistan, we did a evacuation last year uh, of Christians. And so we're looking at um, having strategic 
people on the ground now in Afghanistan. A lot of people left and now people are praying, how do I get back in and start to minister? So um, the persecution of Christians happens, unfortunately, not only just in the uh, Middle Eastern countries uh, and not just uh, them being persecuted by a different faith, but sometimes it happens uh, on a cultural level, maybe not on a physical level, in countries where, uh, well, we have witnessed uh, in some of the countries where the um, predominant church is the Orthodox Church, and there is this animosity from the Orthodox Church towards evangelical Christianity. And so there is cultural persecution in these countries um, against the evangelical Christians. Are you involved in any countries like this? Or in China, for that matter? You know, uh, Helen, that's one of those things, right? When you say to a Christian in the West that maybe a Chaldean church is, is persecuting someone or the Maronite church is persecuting someone and they just, they don't get it. And they it is hard. Understand. right. Even right. now, we, we've been dealing with this for 20 years and it still uh, is hard for me to, to swallow, but it does happen. Uh, not as much on the Coptic side, more so Chaldean, Catholic, Maronite. Those churches, you start to see it. Uh, we also see it in the Druze um, religion. The Druze, uh, not quite as violent as the Islamic response, but can be. And uh, uh, Yazidi. Um, we've had a lot of Yazidis come to faith in Christ in Iraq. And uh, one of them recently said to us, if my family finds out, they will kill me, uh, which was surprising because I, I had always kind of thought Yazidis were more peaceful. But when it comes to changing your religion, it is just not received well. Uh, so so are you offering support in those situations? Because um, I think in situations like this, it's more emotional trauma um, than maybe physical or social. Maybe it's not the loss of your job. We uh, we have extensive ministry among the Yezids, you know, and in that case, you're normally ostracized by your family. You're just basically, and, and you know, in, in this culture, losing your family is losing everything. So in that case, probably offering emotional support um, is a big, uh, big help. It is. I mean, on the, on the physical side, we, we basically tell our team, we give them a, a budget of what we call lightning funds. So those funds are used to actually extract somebody out of a dangerous situation. They don't have to come and, you know, create this report. And then we wait 30 days and we kind of respond. They do it immediately, get that person into a safe house, get them out of danger. That is, they have that ability to use those discretionary funds on the, on the more long-term cases. Once we've maybe extracted somebody out, we will review cases and say, okay, does this person need to go to a counseling? Sometimes we have whole counseling uh, programs where we bring everybody together in a hotel room or a ballroom or something and bring in a speaker. Sometimes we have individual counseling, but we will evaluate whether that person needs kind of further counseling because there is this emotional and, and oftentimes um, spiritual <laughs> need that these people have that, that are that maybe you and I haven't necessarily experienced. 
So I, of course, have to ask uh, for some stories, Josh. Um, what are some of the most dramatic stories that you have experienced in your work of the persecution and perhaps of a rescue operation? I'll tell you one story that's my favorite story of God working in a miraculous way. And the second, they're all miraculous. But the second is a, is a story of rescue. Our coordinator in Lebanon, and he is bold. He says we can use his real name. His name is Amal. And Amal really believes that God rescued him and saved him out of Islam. He was starting to question, you know, whether or not God had, you know, that, that Christ was real, that Christ was the son of God. And so he was wrestling in that. He had this bad accident with a, with a saw. He was, he was basically using a buzz saw on some wood and the saw came back and hit him in the face and it, it cut him really badly. And he said, he felt like the Lord had told him, if I wanted to kill you, I would have killed you. <laughs> you know? And in this moment he began, he began, he had this very interesting experience between the Quran and the Bible where he says he saw physically uh, demons uh, leaving the Quran or, or ex being coming out of the Quran. And, and he saw the face of the devil. Uh, his wife says he was shaking uncontrollably. And God has used that moment in his life to sharpen his evangelism and his passion for the Lord. And so he's really well known in Lebanon for that. And one day somebody gave his phone number out to uh, a member of ISIS. And he received a call from this man. And this man said, I have a lot of questions. I'm, I'm wrestling with whether Christ is real. And I heard that you have answers. And so they met together. And Amal said at the time that he felt that this man was unstable and he knew something wasn't quite right, but he felt like the Lord was saying to him, just be bold with him. I'm with you. So Amal begins to share the gospel with this young man. And at the end of that kind of gospel presentation, the, the man doesn't really respond. He kind of goes away. And Emil thinks like maybe he's emotionally, like he's got like, you know, schizophrenia or something. He's kind of not acting right. Uh, but two weeks later, he calls and he says, I want to meet with you again. And so this young man comes to meet with Emil. And he says, I want to tell you about a dream that I had. He said, you were in the dream and you walked up to me with an envelope a white envelope and, and there was blood dripping from the corner of that envelope. And when I walked up to the, the envelope, I stuck my nose in it and it smelled of perfume of incense of like a cologne that was smelled wonderful smell. And Emma looked at him and said, that is Jesus's blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this is what I was trying to tell you. And in that moment, he begins to weep uncontrollably. This, this member of ISIS, they refer to him as the Prince of ISIS. He's somebody that other ISIS members have sworn allegiance to. He was a Sharia court judge in Syria, and that was weighing heavily on him. He later, I met him because this young man's now serving in the church today. And I met him and he said, you know, when I first saw the dream, I, I thought the blood was either my blood or it was going to be Amal's blood. I was either going to kill him and I was going to be getting rid of this Christian, or it was going to be my blood. And I was going to be a martyr. And so you know, th that story to me speaks to the fact that God is working in these really unique ways in that part of the world. And he does it oftentimes through these, these dreams, these visions. 
that is an incredible story. Yeah. Now the second story was um, uh, one of our coordinators in Iraq. He's from Mosul. And when ISIS came into Mosul, most of the Christians left, all the Christians really left the exception of, of a small handful that stayed back to serve, but they went to places like Erbil and, you know, Karakosh and kind of the other Christian, more, more secular Christian areas. And so um, he, but he maintained a ministry on Facebook with people back in, in Mosul. And these, this one young man said, I want to know more about Jesus. And so our coordinator began following up with him and he prays to receive Christ through the internet. They're only like a hundred miles away from each other. And then that young man leads his cousin to the Lord and the family finds out and begins beating them and torturing them, locking them in their rooms. And what we found out was, is that this family is from a tribe that is traces its heritage and lineage back to the prophet Muhammad. And so there was a ton of pride and you know, shame and all this stuff wrapped up. So we ended up helping those two young men escape to another country where they, they um, served for six months in our, in our, one of our other countries. And uh, later they felt that the family had calmed down and they've gone back now and the family doesn't want to kill them. They, there's kind of some peace and God is now using them to reach their family members uh, back in um, Northern Iraq. So it is, awesome to watch the scattering that happens, you know, that God is scattering his people. And sometimes you can get really, it seems very disconcerting and yet God's using it in a way that, um, that, that furthers his kingdom. When we were in Lebanon this summer together for a retreat, somebody took us to the cedars of Lebanon and they said, do you know how cedar trees spread, how their seeds spread and their trees, other trees grow up? And I said, no, I never really thought about it. He said, uh, more often than not, it's from a thunderstorm. Uh, lightning strikes the tree and it will split that tree. And then the acorns or the, the, the seed or whatever will, will fall into another part of the soil. And out of that grows um, a cedar, another cedar tree. And I said to my team, my team lead, I said, this is you all. This is you. This is our, per- this is our persecuted brothers and sisters. The lightning strikes and God uses that splitting to then further his church, further his kingdom. It's painful, but it has um, it, it has a much bigger impact. I think this is awesome, Josh, what you're doing and, uh, you know, being there for the persecuted church and, and uh, lending a, a hand, uh, helping escape, help deliver them from the critical situations. But sometimes... And escape is not an option. You know, uh, it bothers me, uh, not bothers, but I think about it often because missions work is what I do. Um, and, and many countries where we work, uh, it's Christianity is illegal or, or not welcome. And I saw this movie several years ago um, called The Silence. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it's a movie by Martin Scorsese, and it's about these two um, Catholic priests that traveled to Japan uh, to uh, proclaim the gospel and uh, the and Christianity is severely being severely persecuted and so on one hand they have this passion and zeal to bring people to Christ and they're being successful on the other hand they're immediately faced with the fact that these people that they bring to Christ are dying for Christ and so that creates this conflict within one of the priests have you seen it 
I have not. And that's on my list of things to watch with my wife. And I, we, that's, that's good. I'm glad you so I highly recommend, I highly recommend this movie because it does um, raise this moral dilemma. On one hand, you know, that these people will not ever know life at its best and at its fullest and more importantly, an eternal future without Christ. On the other hand, you know, that quite possibly you leading them to Christ could mean extreme hardship or physical death even. So how do you um, encourage a person or um, how do you deal with that? You know, in, especially in countries where Christianity is severely persecuted because essentially uh, of course, it's their own choice. And, and mo- more often than not, people are fully aware when they accept Christ in countries like this, they're fully aware of what they're risking. But uh, uh, what if the escape is not an option for them? How do you offer support and encouragement in that situation? You're asking a great question. And it is a challenge of mine. I, I find it hard for me to exhort or encourage one of our members to be courageous when, when I'm living in relative comfort. If, if we're honest, we just have to be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm living in relative comfort right now. I'm not being hunted down. I'm not being persecuted. And so a lot of times it comes down to our team leaders. Who, many of them have paid heavy, heavy prices. Our coordinator in Turkey was in prison for three years in Iran did a 90-day hunger strike to see his other brothers and sisters that were being held released. We, we have members of our team who repeatedly go before the secret police, put into a van, curtains drawn, car gets driven to an unmarked building. Questions, 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 hours of questions. M- many of them, some of them have been chased out of their own home by their mother or father with a knife, with a gun. And when they look at me and they say, Jesus is worth it, I then know and I can have confidence and trust that they're going to lead their other brothers and sisters in compassion, in grace, and yet with courage. And so that is really what it comes down to. And I I tell people when I introduce our team leaders, I say, these people are my heroes. Many people have heroes of the faith who have gone on I, I get to live with my heroes of the faith right now. I get to serve with them. And so it's a great question that you're asking. It's something that I think our whole team here in the in Atlanta wrestle with. But we, we know that God has brought the right people um, to us to serve in leadership roles and to carefully and wisely walk others through it. You know, um, one time um, in our ministry, and that was about 10, maybe 15 years ago, and we were in Iraq, and we were in a very uh, hairy situation, if you will, where we literally didn't know if we're going to make it out, and quite possibly we could have been captured the next day. And so I was, uh, I had to face that question, like, if I'm captured and if I'm tortured, Am I going to have, like, am I going to deny Christ for my life? Am I going to have the courage, you know? And this is a question that no one can answer until you are tested. And fortunately, I didn't, uh, I didn't have to be tested uh, with that. But I think it is important for us 
to understand in in the Western church that might be fairly safe and and uh, as you said so uh, correctly very comfortable sometimes too comfortable uh, this this is coming to change you know the, these days are uh, coming to the end the church uh, is going to be persecuted here in America and in the West and. Eventually, each one of us will have to face that challenge. You know, are we whether it's a physical persecution or a cultural persecution, which sometimes is just as just as painful and hard. We have to ask ourselves this this question: Am I gonna Am I gonna remain true to Jesus? You know, and that's why I think what you do is so important because, uh, just like you said, the persecuted church is an inspiration to us. If they can do it, so can we. <laughs> we can learn things from them as we're helping them. Yes. Yeah, I was trying to find the passage. Um, I think it's in Timothy. And I said it to my team where he says, we boast about your faith to the other churches. He says, we boast about your faith because you are persevering under great persecution. And it, it's interesting because, you know, sometimes we don't think of boasting it's like, really? It sounds very prideful. But if we're boasting about other people and how God, then it, it should be something we should celebrate. We should be telling people, look at how they are persevering under such great stress. And then it gives us that perspective. Well, if, you know, whatever we're dealing with, it should pale in comparison. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't fear. We should, we should lean in and, and trust the Lord in certain areas. And it is like nothing else. This has done uh, amazing things for my own personal faith journey, for sure. Thank you so much, Josh. I really uh, admire what you and your team do. Uh, I can relate to it maybe uh, a little more than uh, some other listeners because we are involved in this work and have uh, seen similar stories and situations. So if someone who is listening wanted to help, wanted to get involved, how can they do that? So uh, you can go to our website htp.org help the persecuted and you can learn more about what we're doing we we love it when people sign up for the prayer report we do a prayer report every saturday morning and it gives real specific prayer requests we change people's names but it gives you insight into what god is doing at the individual level and you can also just learn more about and and the organization and also support financially or however the lord leads you and um yeah, that's that's htp.org. That is great. And we will post the link in the show notes uh, so that uh, our listeners can easily click on it and be right there. Well, in light of the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church coming up, and I think it's observed the first Sunday of November, if I'm not mistaken, how can how can the church in America, Canada, the church in the West, pray for the persecuted church? What are the most important prayer points, you would say? Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting that that first Sunday, right, it, it, the first Sunday of November coincides with the, the old church calendar, the uh, All Saints Day, which, which typically I think the church would sort of look back at saints who have been martyred for their faith. But to realize that it's happening now, that that is what's important. I mean, that we want to both recognize what God did in, past, in the past, but also say, hey, it's happening right now. And to just be aware of it, and I think, is the first and uh, first part, is to be aware that that is happening at that level. 
And then I think the second thing is, is how do we pray for these people? How do we, how do we become enjoined to this, this church, this body? You meet a believer in the Middle East or at a church in the, in the Middle East. You say, this is my brother. This is my sister. When they hurt, I hurt. And so how do we become more enjoined to that body, to that, that part of the body? And I think that that comes through making yourself aware of, of reading their stories, of praying for them. And, and possibly good, possibly God calls you there to go serve. Uh, we, we've seen that for sure. Well, thank you so much, uh, Josh. And again, uh, our prayers are with you in what you're doing. And uh, we're praying for your safety and protection as you do that. And uh, really appreciate you doing this interview. Thank you, Helen. When you accept Christ in your life, you automatically expose yourself to the possibility of persecution. And while you may think that this is the price you're willing to pay, it is important to remember that this is also a blessing. In Matthew uh, 5, 10 through 12, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. The stories that Josh shared about how God is moving powerfully in and through the persecuted church are an inspiration and an encouragement to us that with God's help, we can be victorious and persevere no matter what comes our way. It is also a reminder that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who need our help and prayers. So November 6th, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church is coming up, and I encourage you to dedicate this day specifically to lift the persecuted church across the world in your prayers. Also, check out Josh's website. You will find the link uh, in the show notes and see how you can practically help and support this ministry. At World Missions Alliance, we believe that change lives change lives. There is nothing more eternal and significant that you can do in this life than to lead another person to Christ. We actually work in most of the countries that Josh mentioned in the conversation. And I can tell you, despite difficult circumstances, people in these countries are hungry for the truth. And you can offer them salvation through Christ and a path to a better life. If you feel called to missions, check out our website, rfwma.org, and see how you can get involved. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, I encourage you to consider supporting us financially, help us continue to make more episodes. You can do this by, again, going to our website, rfwma.org. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Helen Todd. Limitless Spirit Podcast is produced by World Missions Alliance. We believe that changed lives change lives. If you want to see your life transformed by Christ's love, or if you want to help those who are hurting and hopeless and discover your greater purpose in serving Christ through short-term missionary work, check out our website, rfwma.org, and find out how to get involved.